You're listening to the Footprint Coalition's Downstream Channel. Today, we're continuing our deep dive into humanity's relationship with waste. Robert and Rachel, please welcome Leland Melvin. From football stadiums to orbiting space stations, the athlete, scientist and educator Leland Melvin has set foot on some of humanity's most rarefied real estate. He was drafted to the NFL by the Detroit Lions, but when injuries kept him out of the league, he made the natural next step to work for NASA as an aerospace engineer. As an astronaut, Leland flew two missions to the International Space Station. We asked him to talk us through his experience living in a completely closed environment and how that shaped his perspective on our behavior down on Earth. And there he is, Leland Melvin. How are you, sir? Robert, how you doing, sir? Wow, what a pleasure. By the way, I thought I had an interesting life trajectory, and then Rachel was just reading your bio, and I'm like, man, we got to talk to this guy. <laughs> it's ten pages we long, all, depending on we how all you have it. these trajectories, right? That, <laughs> yeah, that kind of move in different ways, but it's all about everyone doing their part to save the planet and and take us to another level. Thank you for coming space casual today. I love, it. love it. Well, you know, here's my deal. You know, there may be a kid watching and they go, wait a minute. If he can get in space, I can get in space, you know. So that representation truly does matter. It certainly does. And I love that from Jump, you were like, no, I don't relate because they don't look like me. And we need and have needed and now have diversity in space where... Uh, I guess we are not uh, exempt from the constraints of our uh, earthly misgivings, but um, what were you like as a kid? I have to know. A little nerdy, but kind of on the kind of nerdy jock side. So when I was like after football practice, you know, the guys were calling me Larry Lab and stuff. And I had this chemistry set that I mixed these two chemicals together and blew my mother's living room up. And I, (laughs) By the way, I heard that she got you a chemistry set that was not age appropriate to begin with. Non-OSHA certified. (laughs) (laughs) She knew something. When I mixed these chemicals and I blew this hole up and I was like leaning back, my eyes were like this big because my brain was activated to science. And all I needed was a lab coat and goggles to be a chemist. I now, at at an age of probably fifth grade, I knew what it meant to be a scientist. And that, that led my journey. Just those informal education, out of school time learning, moments were critical for my development and then they gave you a bunsen burner and it was off to the races <laughs> yeah then they let you blow things up officially in chemistry yeah chemistry class. but you're so right that we need to see it to be it um even just since 2008 i know there's been a bunch of young people who for some reason are said uh tony uh starkey's a scientist it showed me that it was cool that i was attracted to this stuff begin with there really is a new paradigm nowadays whereas back then they'd have called me poindexter and you know whatever but uh, it's just amazing to me that we've all wound up here today with this common cause but you are the guest and it is you whose mindscape we must probe i'm going to hand it over to the professional to kick things off okay because i started my sort of space fascination with space ice cream solely i remember it at the uh which we don't have in space yeah i i do know that so speaking of the things that you do bring in the lead up to a mission how how are you determining what it's absolutely essential to have up there a lot of that stuff is already picked out for you i mean you have a group that's managing all the things that you stow like all your clothing your underwear your t-shirts your you know all the stuff you you pick out and then it's shrink wrapped and then you put it in the in the stowage area 
and then when it comes out you can't get anything back in there because it's all like you know, blows up <laughs> um but more like the food you do food tasting and you pick the things that you like that as long as they have the nutritional uh, value that you need for you know your your metabolic intake for that day um but the personal things that you bring um are more you have a a small set of space that you can put these certain things in like baseball cap from my university a pennant a football from the national football hall of fame we even took up a nfl coin for the coin toss for the super bowl and that was pretty cool oh man i make a lot of comparisons between uh kung fu and being in the entertainment industry what what sort of similarities can you draw between being on a high functioning football team and working with a team of astronauts aboard a space shuttle. I related to a wide receiver and a quarterback at third down and long, and you have two minutes left in the game, and the crowd is standing up and they're stomping on the bleachers and you can't hear anything. You're having to do audibles. You know, if the if the defense rolls up on you, you go from a ten yard out to maybe take it to the house and score a touchdown. Yep. And so when we're training, there are times when we have no calm. And on the flight deck, you have a commander, a pilot, mission, two mission specialists. And there may be times when you can't hear anyone, but you use sign language. You use tapping someone on the shoulder and pointing to the switches that you have to switch or we all die. You know, so there's this, this similarity in communication when the communication is gone. And how do you do that non-verbally to save the day? The excitement of a full stadium to me I don't know how that compares to those thruster engines rattling the foundation of the the 50 square miles. And you are doing that thing that I've only ever seen in like a Ron Howard movie. How does one's psyche even ingest that? We do a lot of visualization. I did that in football. I did that training for this mission. I trained 10 years to fly in space. And throughout the course of training, you get so micro-focused on the task, but at the same time, you have to see the big picture because if you miss something in your periphery, that could be game over. So this is this balance of effectively, systematically doing the task at hand that you're assigned to do, and then checking out the big picture so that you can, you know, if you see something over here that you've got to take care of, you got to catch that also. So it's this this joy of repetition coupled with um, uber awareness. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and then you're shaking so much that your eyeballs are moving like this where you only see squiggly lines on the, on the CRT monitors. And at two and a half minutes, the solid rocket boosters jettison. You're now flowing smoother, but now you're getting three Gs on your chest. So you're like, you're laboring to breathe and you're trying to talk and you're trying to do your job. And it's uh, this this concert of things that you have to do in eight and a half minutes to get the space. Boy, you want to talk about team building. Oh. By by the time you're you're at an ISS, it's like you must have created a bond with your uh, with your folks. It's just I don't even know how to draw a comparison to it. All right, Rachel. Okay. We need we need answers, buddy. <laughs> I'm going to get us back on track here about our, our no waste idea here. Um, so 
you said you mentioned sort of an awareness when things you know need to be fixed and when things go wrong. I mean, can you fix basically anything? Is that is that the idea? When you're in space, you have just the things you need, and you can fix anything that you need. And things are meant to be used over and over and over and over again, right? I remember the first crew that went up. I was in Kazakhstan when Bill Shepard, Yuri Gazinko, and Sergey Krikalov launched from the Kazakhstan Cosmodrome, and they snuck on a Makita drill because that wasn't certified. It wasn't manifested, but they knew they needed that drill to build some things. There's certain little things that you have to have to do the the task. And I think our tool, our toolkit grew by leaps and bounds after that first, um, that first mission to the space station. And, uh, but you do have to be able to fix everything. Um, You can't call the Maytag repairman to come and fix the toilet. And we all are, (laughs) we all have this lifelong learning modality of the, you know, with, with the right basic training, the right basic training with tools or with systems or with procedures, you can do anything. There was one case where um, we had some micrometeor debris take out a part of the solar solar rays. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have a way to get all the way to the top of the solar rays. So we had to use the robotic arm and a 50 foot extension that we usually don't couple and put a person on the end of that. And then we had to get the tallest person, we call him too tall, he was a doctor <laughs> who was gosh. six three, who could who could only reach up to the top of that and fix it with these things we made, we called them bow ties. And we made them to kind of slip through the hole in the solar ray to pull that thing back together so it wouldn't flap and then unfurl and cause more panels to get damaged. So it's really like the Apollo 13 mindset of, yeah. Yeah. You use what you have and you figure it out. And if you don't have it, right now we have 3D printing up there. And so mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out how to 3D print with recycled waste. Because yes. a Mars mission, a, a lunar mission, you know, you don't have that rapid, well, moon you can get there in three or four days, but Mars, you're stuck with what you have. And then how do we use things in situ like regolith and Martian, Martian uh, soil to build things and create things? Right. You just don't have this ability to take something, to extract something from somewhere and then make something out of it and then waste it. You're not, you're definitely not jettisoning trash out of, out of the, out of the fuselage, right? I mean, you can't, you have to renew things. Right now we are, we send out from the space station and the resupply vehicles will have the trash in there and that burns up in the atmosphere before it goes over the ocean. But I think for the longer duration and then the longer uh, distance stays, we're going to have to recycle what we have. Mm-hmm. It's it's imperative because we don't have the we don't have the up mass to take everything with us that we need that we can throw away. Right. So then, when you return, does it make you really think about all the things that you're using? You're like, wow, this is just a it's luxury. Like camping. It's right. camping. Right? right. If you go on a if you go on a ten day camping trip, you don't need ten pair of jeans. Right. <laughs> we, we took we took one pair and a pair of shorts for ten days, and you recycle your underwear, you recycle t shirt. As long as you have one change of clothing, one can dry, and then you know one can be worn. But we were and talking you- about this consumerism, and uh, so much of it is the psychology of what we think we need. But yeah. I, I guess you've had the um, the benefit of being somewhere where it is so black and white, it is so nuts and bolts, and so much of it comes down to ingenuity within as perfected a system as you can create knowing Murphy's law but then 
with your work and your and your day job back on earth what sort of thought sphere do you find yourself in having had that i mean you know it is it is it is such a small club of people who have been able to have that that experience of ultimate objectivity what what do you bring back that we can that we can chew on and 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 think about with all the the crises we're in now particularly with the environment i think robert the biggest thing is perspective that you get from space when you when you're working with people that you used to fight against and yuri and hans from germany and rush you know if any one of us flips the wrong switch we're all dead and so we learn to live together as a family even though i might not speak their language they might not speak my language that great but we figure it out because it's our survival and so we have our our red hats and our blue hats and our white hats here in our country that are all battling against each other over causes but when you look back at the planet from space it's one blue marble with no geographic border with no political borders right and you see that ecosystems are all connected in some way so what affects and we've seen that so much with the pandemic i mean one person gets on an airplane from one country and comes to another tons of people are infected and that's the same thing with our environment when we see the the sahara desert sandstorms wrapping around and coming back around the planet you know uh, uh the amazon burning the fires burning in the amazon you can actually see the trails <laughs> and then hurricanes we we actually do photography earth observation photography during uh natural disasters because we're going around the planet every 90 minutes and we can get a picture um from the ground someone saying get a picture of this try to find this try to see this and with zoom lenses we can zoom in pretty close i mean you have other you know um satellite assets that can zoom in too but we're we're right there and right. we can respond very rapidly so Got it. i think that perspective that. is the main thing that we can do to bring the civilization together to where we're working together as one family one team you know you think about local you think about your community then spread out you know local to global to take care of everyone because that's 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 the true pandemic we don't work together and we we trash our environment mm -hmm. and people say that the earth is fragile and i always thought about that till i went to space and i look back at the planet and i'm like the earth is not fragile it's doing its thing we're the fragile ones we're going to be burped out we're going to die we're going to go away from our you know misgivings but the earth is gonna keep doing its thing and it's gonna re repopulate itself, reconstitute itself and, and figure it out. And we're gonna be gone. But you're an optimist, generally. Totally, when you're on space station, you hold your thumb out and that's the width of our atmosphere that wow. keeps us alive. Mm -hmm. that's, our, that's our life support system right there in a thumbprint width. And so when you think about what we're doing to it, you think about in the 70s when we were using hairspray, fluorohydrocarbons, they were going up, kill the ozone layer. We passed legislation, policy, banned those, those chemicals. I mean, I didn't have that problem, as you can see right here. But, <laughs> um, and now the ozone hole changes. So science does matter, right? Policy does matter. People working together to solve problems is, is how we make change. 
That's a good, actually, example of material science changing something. I mean, do you have a lot of hope that there's a variety of different materials that we can change and do much better than we currently do? There's a lot of stuff going on now, like I said, with the 3D printing and microgravity. And I guess the, the main thing is really to find out what are the what are the waste materials that we can then process into, you know, raw, raw feedstock. Mm-hmm. for the next uh, the next pieces. It's this odd thing. You talk about childhood traumas. You know, they're, they're all things that they're abrupt perspective right. shifts. They are, um, they're, they're collisions uh, that, that set us on a trajectory to have to assimilate more. And I sometimes wonder, you know, I look at kids nowadays and I think they've got a heavy, heavy burden on them with it being the information age. And I just wonder if and hope that with folks like you out there educating and living the kind of experience and example you do, that they will see that we are made of tougher stuff because they are the generation that will be the pioneers that we set up to go colonize Mars. How do we help fortify them? A lot of kids have trauma that's not addressed and we band-aid it, we we don't address the the root cause of the trauma, and uh, and so if you're going to teach anyone anything, you've got to find out where they are. I, I was I was talking to some educators and uh, the ones that were becoming astronauts, educator astronauts, and I asked each of them when they were in the interview process, I said, "What is the worst? What was your worst and best day teaching?" And they said the worst day teaching was when I found out that my star student, whose grades were dropping from A's to F's, uh, where when uh, when on Wednesday she wouldn't come to school and on Wednesdays was when you know her family put her out to to do jobs that were not 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 jobs that a young middle school girl should be doing and and every child has to have a man or woman in the yellow hat from Curious George Curious George could get in trouble could do all these things but he always had the man in the yellow hat who had his back and so who are those children's men or women in the yellow hat that will be there listening a champion for them, and and until that trauma and those things are, are are rectified, how you can how can you even open your mind to get the knowledge of education in? And so, if an educator doesn't know where their kids are, you know, then how can they feed them? How right. can they give them the knowledge? I mean, man, man in the yellow hat, man, that's yeah. Yeah. that's heavy stuff. It is heavy, but you know what? I have to say, when I, when we showed up here today. It really comes down to what do we have to do? We have to embrace the possibility of the triumph of the spirit, and we have to encourage each other. But you just went so to the heart of the matter. You are one of our uh, coalition heroes, and uh, it's great even just getting a a small dose of Leland Melvin today. (laughs) I appreciate what you guys are doing to make a difference and change the universe. It's, It's so important. Perspective, perspective. The orbital shift, the overview effect, what we look at when we look at the planet from space, we get this cognitive change in the way we see ourselves connected to the rest of the universe. Mm -hmm. And if you go to space and you have this one mindset about where you exist in this space, you come back changed forever. And, And you try to share as much of what you felt, what you saw, what you tasted, what you experienced, how your heart, your soul changed with anyone that will listen. And that's why I think we become such ambassadors for humanity, because that's what we see when we look at the planet is humanity. 
Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we can talk about all the technological things, the material science, the, the robotics, everything. And I, I got to share this one little story. This, this Columbus laboratory behind me, that was my mission objective. My primary mission objective was to install mm-hmm. that $2 billion wow. Columbus laboratory, medical research, material science research, uh, all kinds of you know, research you can do in that lab. But when I installed that, that what I th- I thought that would be my aha moment. That paled in comparison to when Peggy Whitson invited us over to the Russian segment to have a meal. She said, "You guys bring the rehydrated vegetables. We'll have the meat." So we floated <laughs> over with a bag of vegetables. We're like, you know, coming over. Yeah. And we are breaking bread at seventeen thousand five hundred miles per hour, going around the planet every ninety minutes, with people used to fight against. It's like a Benetton commercial. Mm-hmm. While listening to Sade's smooth operator, we were jamming, we were float jamming, we were eating, floating foods in our mouths. And that's when that perspective shift changed. Because I was so task saturated on doing my mission critical job, primary mission objective, trained for 10 years to fly this robotic arm and plop that thing on. And that was nothing when I got with my, my peeps and had this meal. Mm-hmm. And and I think once we 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 take down the screens, we take away some of the other things, and we we get a chance to get back to where we can sit across from each other and break bread, and talk about the day, and talk about how do you feel, how do you really feel, what do you love, what music do you like, you know, what do you like to do, and get those things, and then we form these teams and coalitions of people that trust each other and say, okay, let's solve this problem down in the community. There's lead paint on the on the houses, some houses down here. How do we fix that lead paint so these kids don't eat it and get, get lead poisoning? Taking care of locally to globally. Mm-hmm. Coalitions of communities that trust each other and believe in each other. And once you have someone believe in you and they have your back, you can do anything. Here's what I'm realizing today too. What is Footprint Coalition doing? We're hoping for uh, a perspective shift. We want to, mm-hmm. if we can feel it happen here, uh, as suggested by Leland Melvin, then all will be well. We have much to learn from you, sir, and I want to thank you for your time today. Hey, thank you, and Godspeed on the journey. Appreciate it. Thanks, Leland. There you have it. 